And let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, If you are visiting with us this morning, or maybe if you haven't been here, we've been walking our way through the book of 1 Samuel. That's how we approach God's word, is systematically studying it. And um, we find ourselves now in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, and we're going to read verses 1 um, all the way through the end of the chapter. So the whole chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. And Ron is going to come, and he's going to lead us in that. Let's stand together as we read God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord. And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistine, Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged, all of, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this story, for your kindness in revealing to us, Lord, the events of Israel's history, and Lord, for having the detail and the um, 
the, the, the plot line, Lord, that we see unfolding in this book. Lord, we recognize that although this is a record of Israel's history, it's a record for a purpose so that those original readers, Lord, would, would, would be impacted by your, your kindness and your graciousness and they would see, Lord, how you, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of sin, in the midst of, uh, of a nation that has turned its back on you, Lord, you are raising up a leader for your glory. And Lord, for us, as we look at our circumstances, as we look at, at the, the plight that we are in, Lord, we are reminded that you are still at work, not only in our lives, but even here in the Bay Area, in California, in the United States. But now, Lord, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to do a work in us, Lord, to work through um, your messenger this morning, Lord, so that not the words of Rod would be heard, but, Lord, your words would come with power and authority and conviction to the hearts, Lord, who are here. We need you desperately, Lord, and we ask, Lord, for you to accomplish your will in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's a saying that you and I hear once in a while when things are going bad or when a person, uh, their world is falling apart. It's probably a, an expression that is best known from the movie Aladdin, and it's this one. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, there's a truth to that, but we need to be careful with that statement. Will those desperate measures be the result of our own sinful flesh or will they be the outflow of our union with Christ? Will those desperate measures involve the kind of skill and manipulation of human wisdom that might say, hey, I can get out of this, just watch me, or I've been in this kind of mess before and I will get out of it again. Or will they be the application of humility before the God of the universe? See, desperate times truly do call for desperate measures, but the kind of measures that are revealed in God's word that will bring about full restoration and everlasting peace. And this is the question before us today. What will Israel do in their desperation? And the question for us today is what will we do in our desperation? Let's think about this idea of desperation as we read once again verses one and two. And the men of Kirith-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged in Kirith Jerium, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So just to set the stage, let's remind ourselves what has taken place. Israel has been driven to the point of desperation. And after being defeated by the Philistine army, the Israelites tried to use the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm only to be defeated again and the result of that defeat 
was that 30,000 men died as well as the ark being taken into captivity. But because of the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Philistines, because the ark of God was in their presence, the ark was returned seven months later. And when the Israelites received that ark, they celebrated, but they did not respect properly the Lord's holiness. And as a result, 70 men are struck dead. And so quickly the Israelites send the ark away to another town called kirith Jerim. And during that time, Israel continued to endure the oppression from the Philistines. See, we may be left to think that the Philistines brought back the ark and then Israel's like, okay, everything's over. No, the, the oppression continued. Israel suffered. Israel was under the yoke of the Philistines. So this was the, the sin cycle pattern that was laid down in the book of Judges and it was being played out in Israel once again even though the ark had been returned. Where the people would wander away from God and they would worship other gods and they would commit acts of immorality with other peoples and with those other gods in their worship to those gods. And as a result, there would be this oppression from those peoples. In this case, it's the Philistines. But over and over again in the book of Judges, this cycle happened. But at the end, they would finally get to a place they would lament the fact that they are under this yoke of suffering. And they would cry out to God to deliver them. And in particular, here in this case, Israel is crying out to God to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. And then we are reminded again of the prophet Samuel. See, we've had three chapters here where Samuel has been somewhat in the background. We started out with him. It was building up to him, and then all of a sudden, whoop, it stopped. And we focused on the Ark of the Covenant. But Samuel now comes in as one of the judges of Israel, and he will be God's instrument of both deliverance and judgment, to deliver Israel from the oppression of their enemies, but also to judge Israel for their wandering from God. And so 20 years before God raised Samuel in the house of the Lord under Eli, the head priest, that, was, that happened before this, that would be 20 years before that, and before our particular passage here, beginning at verse three. He had grown in the presence of the Lord. He had grown in the Lord and with the favor of men. And his reputation was such that when he prophesied, his words did not fail and it was known throughout the land. So as a, as a prophet, Samuel spoke infallibly for God. And as he spoke for God to the people, they were expected to be obedient. Yet even though all Israel acknowledged that Samuel was a prophet through whom the Lord spoke powerfully, it appears that for two decades they chose to ignore his words. So we're trying to get a sense of what happened. It just, it just lays out there for us in verse two when it says, a long time passed. <laughs> what is going on during that time? Well, Samuel is the prophet of God speaking the word of God to the people of God but apparently they are ignoring him. 
but they finally get to the place where they are in desperate circumstances. Now, there's no, there's no record of, of anyone during those 20 years saying, where's the ark of God? We've got to restore the ark back to its rightful place. No record of that at all. There's no hint of them seeking counsel about what they should do. Walter Kaiser sums this up pretty well. He says, when pagans and believers alike find it convenient or preferable to substitute almost anything in the place of the reading, hearing, and proclamation of the word of God, beware, trouble for that people is just around the corner. But now after this long time had passed, these 20 years of oppression, Israel is lamenting. They have, or they're ready now to listen to the man of God with the word of God. Now I just want to point out for you, uh, secondly here as we kind of bring things in our introduction to our text, that in this passage we find Samuel judging the people of Israel. We find it in verse 6, in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. This was his primary ministry to Israel at this time. In fact, look at verse six in particular. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now as we discover how the people responded to Samuel's ministry of judging, we can ask ourselves a very personal and relevant question. And here is the ultimate point of our passage today. How are we going to respond when God judges his people? How are we going to respond when he judges us? Have we wandered away from God to immorality and the worship of other gods? Have we been stubborn to not listen to God's word and counsel? Have we found ourselves entangled in the mire and mess of sinful choices and their lasting consequences? And are we ready to cry out to God lamenting our circumstances, our sin, and our shame. How are we to respond when God judges us? And so in 1 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 17, we see God outlining for us four right responses to God when he judges us for our sins. And these are four attitudes or actions that are key for a full and ongoing restoration. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. What I'm calling genuine repentance. I want to stay in verse two just for a moment because we want to think about this, this, this expression, lamenting. There's a lamenting after the Lord. Did you get that? A lamenting after the Lord. The word lament means to, to wail, to mourn over your situation, your condition, your circumstance. And the picture of this word being used is a picture of a child who comes running and crying and wailing to its mother or father for help. And it connotes a sighing, a heavy breathing. In Israel's case, they're lamenting or crying out to God for help because of all the oppression and struggle they're going through. There is, there is another strong force, however, at work during those same 20 years that we've already identified but is often overlooked. And it is this, it is the faithful preaching of the prophet Samuel for 20 years. 
Let me remind you of 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 19. Look back if you would. It says, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. So during all this time, Samuel was preaching. He was speaking as a prophet to the people of God who had wandered and who were under oppression. Now they can reject it, they can ignore it, but he was faithful in his responsibility to represent God as a prophet to his people. So 20 years of uninterrupted Philistine oppression had humbled God's people. Misery had accomplished what blessing could not. Just think about that. God often, if we are stubborn before him, will allow misery to be his tool to restore his people back to relationship. And we all say, oh, God must be at work because there's great blessing, and he may be. But God can also be at work through times of struggle, of difficulty, and even oppression because that is a means by which he is waking up his people to return to him and to restore their relationship with him. Israel now cry out to God, the God they had so, not, so long neglected. Now John Shearer records the revivals among the Indians under the ministry of David Brainerd, and these were the, the Indians in the Susquehanna region. This is what he says, just giving an account of what happened under David Brainerd's ministry. Men fell at his feet in anguish of soul. Talk about David Brainerd's feet. These were men who could bear the most acute torture without flinching, but God's arrow had now pierced them. Their pain could not be concealed, and they cried out in their distress, have mercy on me. And what impressed Brainerd most deeply was that though these people came to him in a multitude, each one was mourning apart from the other. It was corporate, but it was individual. It was each individual saying, I have sinned, have mercy on me, but it was everyone saying it together in this mass, and this was an incredible revival that took place among pagan people who had been humbled by the precious word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so suddenly there, had, there has come in the, in the hearts and the minds of these Israelite people a decision to reorientate the inner life. And that, of course, decision, that, that thought, that idea is not something within themselves that they just came up with. It is God at work in them that is driving them to this, this place. So the pain and affliction inflicted by ruthless Philistine conquerors had done God's work to draw these people to think about their God once again. So we've seen somewhat the context of what is going on here, the context of their lamentation. And it's this divine discipline that God had placed them under through the oppression of the Philistine. We've also touched a little bit on the means for their obedient response to the Lord, and that is the preaching of the word of God. And by that, I mean the prophet doing his job proclaiming what God is revealing through him to those people. And now we want to see the content of what 
the word to Israel is all about. Look now at verse three. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the first thing we need to see here is this, that this, this word and their desire to be restored, this desire to, to, to get right with God, you might wanna say, is conditional. It says, if you are returning. And it tells us two things. That their repentance is conditional, yes. In other words, there are things that you will, you will do if you are truly repentant, but secondly, that they had already been turning, that there was already a work going on in them. And if they were gonna be serious about this, they needed to do things God's way and recognize that he is the one that was accomplishing his will in their hearts. And then we see the rest of this little section here, this repentance, and we see two sections there. We see verses three and four that I'm calling their turning, and then verses five and six that I'm calling their worship, okay? So repentance is, first of all, turning. Let's, let's look at the four specific things that, that Samuel says God is saying through Samuel to the people that they need to do. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, number one, put away the foreign gods. If you study the revivals of the Old Testament, you'll find that this is very typically the first thing that is brought up. Put away your foreign gods. Why? Because that is the, the essence of what the people had been doing in practice. They had wandered away from worshiping God and they had embraced the idols of the people that are oppressing them typically, the Baals and the Ashtoreths here, okay? They are to be wholeheartedly in fellowship with God and you cannot be wholeheartedly in fellowship with God unless you are making sure that your loyalties are not compromised. You can't say, I wanna get right with you, God, but I still wanna hold on to my idol. That's not repentance. It begins with saying, I'm getting rid of these idols. This is also a window into understanding the condition of Israel at the beginning of the book. They were, back then, when Hophni and Phinehas were in the temple, also a people who were um, bringing two ideas together, right? The worship of the God of Israel, but also the worship of the pagan gods of these Philistines and others. There was this syncretism that was taking place. And it gives us a little awareness as to the actual um, depravity of these people and the wanderings of these people. Secondly, it says, direct your heart to the Lord. So if putting away their foreign gods is the negative, then this command is the positive. All right, turn away from your foreign gods and turn your hearts to the Lord. To have your heart fixed in the opposite, um, or is the opposite of a wandering heart. So your heart is no longer wandering anywhere, it's now turned and it's fixed. You've seen like a, um, a compass sometimes that, that if you just kind of, if it's loose, you can kind of, let it kind of moves around, right? But all of a sudden it fixes on that north, it just stops because it knows now where that is. 
I often talk about, you know, what, where's the, the weather vane of your life? You want to keep that fixed on Jesus. And if it's blowing around, it's not where it needs to be. And here they're told to keep their heart directed to the Lord. And of course, in the New Testament, we have some similar language here, in particular in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 2, where we're told they're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we're supposed to be keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're directing our heart toward Jesus. And when we do that, we are less likely to be distracted by all these other things that may be going on. Here's the third thing. Not only that, he says, serve the Lord only. It's not enough to empty our lives of the false crutches or idols that we've raised up in the place of Christ. What we must also be doing is be willing to gladly serve only God, God alone. It's also something that means that we, we must listen to his wishes as our master, as our savior, as he gives us his word, we are to humble ourselves and listen to what he says, to learn, to serve, to please. And the fourth thing he mentions here is trusting in his promises. When we turn to God in repentance, then God will turn to us in restoration. And we'll keep all the promises that he has made that relate in particular to our bondage, to our struggle, now, in case we're thinking lightly about repentance, God says through Samuel that all of these responses of returning are to be done in a certain way. It is to be with all your heart, which means this is a wholehearted response to God. Okay, just look at these four things. I'm wholeheartedly putting away the foreign gods. I'm not there, not taking them and you know, in the Midwest, you have basements, right? You, you take it, put them down in your basement and kind of, you know, package it and put it away because I can get to it later. And there's a sense in which we may be tempted to say, okay, God, I, I'm repentant and I'm putting away this God kind of package here and, you know, putting it in the safe and putting the combo on there, but I got the member of the combo and I, if I want to go back and get it, I can know where to get it, right? No, this is a whole hard thing. Get rid of it. Throw it out. Let the garbage truck come and take it away. Then direct your heart to the Lord. Not half-heartedly, but completely. If, you're, if your weather vane is directed, it's going to stay there. If it's not, it's going to wobble all over the place. Serving the Lord only. Wholehearted service of God. He is the one who you serve. You don't have two masters. You have one. And the last one here is this. And trusting in his promises. And we struggle with that. We say, God, I know your word says, but, right? And we backfill all of that after the word but with all sorts of things that are our own thinking, our own wisdom. No, trust what God says. Trust his promises in your circumstance. There's no mere ritual or external showmanship going on here. Verse four, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashroth and they served the Lord only. The Baals and the Ashroth being the, these foreign gods. So they listened and they did what God had told them to do through the word given to them by Samuel. 
So they turn. That's the first thing. The next part, the next few couple of verses, I'm summarizing by saying this is all worship. This is worship that took place at a place called Mizpah. So pick it up now as we are looking now at verses five through six, and as we see this worship taking place in Mizpah, there are gonna be five things that take place. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And again, let's just think through these five things. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but we're going we're to kind of home in on, on repentance in a bigger picture here. First of all, there's prayer. Samuel, as the dedicated spiritual leader of Israel, interceded before God on their behalf. Let me just pause here for a second. The people have already repented, right? They've already turned away from their foreign gods. They're deciding we're gonna serve the Lord only. That was verse four. But now, repentant people not only are gonna do that practically in their homes, but they want to gather together and they want to demonstrate their repentance through a time of worship, okay? And this time of worship now is is going on and, and Samuel is being asked by them to pray. And so he prays to the Lord on their behalf. Now, of course, in our context, it's a reminder of, of the need for our church leadership to intercede on behalf of the flock of God that is under our care. It's also important here to see that Samuel, as a prophet and a deliverer and a judge, is pre-shadowing the ministry of Jesus as our ultimate intercessor before the Father. So although the leaders in the church will intercede for you, there is a greater interceder, and his name is Jesus. So there's prayer. Secondly, there's public repentance. Public repentance. Now you might say that verses three and four mark the individual and personal repentance in the heart of the the Israelites, but here at Mizpah, they draw water and pour it out before the Lord. This is a corporate expression. This is a corporate ceremony they're going through. Not just to go through a ceremony, but there's something that it represents. This act of gathering water and pouring it out and, and, and to never return signifies their commitment to God by pouring out themselves before God never to return back to that sin. That's the idea that's going on here. So it's a picture of contrition to the Lord. It's a picture of their dedication to him. So there's this public repentance. Third thing is this, is fasting. Their heart's sorrow is backed up with more than words. They back it up with action through fasting. They voluntarily afflict their bodies to be without food in order to physically join in the grief that they have in their souls. And, and, and friends, if, if you have ever fasted, um, you recognize that part of fasting is not simply to go on a diet. Part of fasting is to actually get to that place where your body is speaking to you. It's saying, I need something. And that feeling of need is to drive us then to prayer and to say, God, satisfy that hunger need now with spiritual food. 
And those hunger pangs are the, the signals for us to turn once again to God in prayer. So fasting is just a, a physical way of once again coming before God and saying, God, you know my heart, you know my desire, you know my longing, I'm demonstrating that to you through fasting. And then there is this confession. And it says there, we have sinned against who? The Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against you, God. Their sin had been public, so now their confession is public too. That expression, we have sinned against the Lord, is an important and powerful set of words. They get to the heart of the issue at hand. The Israelites have been living in oppression to his will. They have, been, they have, they have violated his commandments. They have dishonored his house and the ark of God, but now they see it as it really is. They are agreeing with God. We have sinned against you. And they recognize that it is their sin that has hindered them all these years. See, there's some honesty there. There's clarity there. There's truth there. And finally, we get to the fifth thing, and that is Samuel as a judge. They submit to Samuel as judge. So they acknowledge that Samuel is God's prophet, should be listened to and obeyed, and has the right to act as God's judge. Now again, for our contemporary culture, this expression, judge, is really offensive. You share, you know, you share the gospel with someone, they say, you, who, how dare you, you think you have the right to judge me? And they, they have no concept of, of really what is meant by judging, but the, the answer is, well, I don't have the right to judge you, but God is judging you. Okay, and, and you can like it, not like it, but the reality is that is what's happening. God measures you based on his standard. And the ministry of the prophet here, as we see four times in this chapter, is that he is the judge of Israel. That doesn't just mean that he comes back like Samson did and physically fights off the Philistines. His ministry of judging is a ministry of the word, is a ministry of proclaiming that word. So to judge in this context is this, and I'll say this twice if it will be a help to you. It is to faithfully represent God to his people without wavering, calling them to repentance, and guiding them into a renewed walk with God. So the ministry of judging here is to faithfully represent God to his people without wavering, calling them to repentance, and guiding them into a renewed walk with God. Now hear this. That should be every pastor's call. That is a faithfulness to God to speak his truth to God's people. And sometimes that truth is a, is a, is a truth of, of kindness and comfort and sometimes that truth is a message of condemnation for sin that has behind it the desire for their, them to recognize that sin and be restored. Restoration is the goal. 
not just slapping people silly with God's word, which is how the world views judgment, right? So for us, it is the humbling of our hearts to the authority of the word of God. So as we turn to God in repentance, as we pray, as we fast, as we confess our sin to the Lord, we must also affirm that Jesus, the prophet, the Messiah, our master, is to be listened to and obeyed. And he, through his word, has the right to judge us. Now friends, what we have here is a picture of genuine repentance, big picture. Turning away from these foreign gods, fixing their hearts on on the Lord. Serving him only, trusting his promises, praying. Going down the list here. Public repentance, fasting, public confession, submitting to the messenger who has the message from God. That's the first part. There's more to how we respond to God's judgment that continues here. Let's look now at verses seven and following. The message of God through Samuel was that if they would turn from their idolatry and serve the Lord only, that he would deliver them. Now they need to believe the promise of God and depend on him through prayer. Let's look at verse seven. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people heard of it, uh, heard of it they were afraid of the Philistines. Did you catch this? The Philistines heard. The Philistines always hear. They always know. And they always come. And our enemy The devil is relentless. His schemes are perpetual. But note this. On the back of genuine repentance is rebellion. When you turn to God in repentance, you are also rebelling against your enemy, the devil. And when he hears that you have rebelled against him, what is he going to do? He's going to try and jump in, and he's going to try and upset that cart as quickly as he can. To be sure, he and his spiritual armies will find out about it, and they will come ready to do battle. They will intimidate you. They will mock you. They will taunt you. And like the Israelites... We are in desperate need of our God to deliver us from our bondage and struggle to be, or for God to be our helper. And listen, this is where we go back now to depend on his promise, to completely depend on him. He says, I will deliver you. So the Israelites appealed to Samuel to pray and to keep on praying. Verse eight, and the people of God, or so the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Sometimes we think that if we repent, our problems will go away. But that is not usually 
the way it works. It is through repentance that we're restored to Christ, but our many problems likely, typically still exist. Okay, so, so just be careful when someone comes to you and says, listen, if you just give it all to Jesus, everything's gonna be okay. You may leave the impression that if I somehow you know, go before God and, and repent, that my problems will just kind of disappear. No, what that means now is that you have a reoriented and restored relationship with the God of the universe, but now, with his help, you can deal with the problems at hand. So much of Christian culture wants the quick fix. They want this experience with God, and they're not willing to recognize that that experience with God doesn't necessarily change the problems before them. But now they need to deal with these problems according to his will, based on his promises. When we repent, we see things differently. We see our struggle through a new spiritual lens. There's been a refocusing through the gospel so that we can see both our foe and our sinful habits with fresh awareness and vigor and be able to deal with them with God's help. So now at the request of the people, Samuel begins the process of crying out to God by first offering to God a burnt offering. And unlike the casual, careless Levites in chapter six, Samuel offers to God a pleasing sacrifice, verse nine. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. This is a very significant moment in the history of Israel in the book of 1 Samuel. This is the first time in this book where God has acted positively toward Israel. It's taken seven chapters. This is the first time he comes to their aid. They had abandoned him and turned to the worship of other gods. No wonder the religious state of Israel uh, was in such ungodly and corrupt mess. But now through their suffering, they are lamenting, they're repenting, they're returning, they're crying out to God for help. This is a good day in Israel. See, all this, all this repenting and, and remorse and, and lamenting and returning, many times people think, oh, we just don't want to go through all that. That just seems really, really bad. No, that is really, really good. See, we want all, there's this idea, we want all this good stuff from God without the process of his restoration through repentance. This is a good day in Israel because God's people are learning once again to depend on him and him alone. Verse 10, and Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Wow. What a turn of events. Now Israel can't say, look how strong our army is. Look how we went out and defeated the Philistines. No. God acted on their behalf. And he thundered down from heaven. The Lord stepped up to the plate when called upon by his desperate people and thundered with a mighty sound that must have been a day to remember. I grew up in the Midwest. 
And I don't know about you, I, I love a good thunderstorm. I actually enjoy the rain falling, don't you? Not only is it refreshing in California, we need rain, but there's something calming about that. It's kind of the, the essence of, we recognize that through the rain there is, there's invigorating life that comes as a result. But a good thunderstorm, if you haven't experienced a good thunderstorm, I encourage you to do that. And one of the reasons you have a porch in the Midwest is to experience a thunderstorm outside. And I remember coming home when I was pastoring in Michigan, and it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, but it had darkened up somewhat, and there was this amber glow across the sky. And you knew that something was up. And I remember you know, this, this kind of flash of light that took place. It was just, it was what they call sheet lightning, just whoosh, just all across the sky, whoosh, across the sky. And I'm driving home, and I'm, I'm watching just the beauty of God's colors and the, this, this display that is better than what you get like at, you know, the Coliseum, all right, on a Friday night. This is God's power on display. And all of a sudden, bang, a lightning bolt shot down about 50 yards in front of me hitting a light pole, actually an electricity pole, and it took out one of the um, transformers, sparks flying, all right, and of course that went over to another one, sparks fly, I'm driving down the road, you know, sparks are flying, it's amber, lightning, you know, you know, no rain yet, and this happened a number of times, I'm not exaggerating, this happened a number of times, and I finally get home, it was about a 20 minute drive home, more than that. And I, and I go and sit on the porch, and you just, the rain starts pouring. And then you hear this kind of rumbling in the background. And then all of a sudden, crash, bang, and And just over and over and over again, you, you, you hear this, this incredible power. And you can, actually, you can actually feel the charge of electricity in the air. It's really an incredible experience. Now, as much as that was powerful, hear this. That was nothing compared to what God did that day when he thundered from heaven. This was not some natural phenomenon where the Philistines said, oh, why do we choose a day when it's thundering? You know, what are we going to do there? Pull out the umbrellas. No, this was God on display, and it shocked the Philistines. So much so that they were thrown into confusion, which means they were running all sorts of different ways. But notice who wasn't confused. The Israelites are not confused. Somehow, they're recognizing this is God answering our prayer. He is delivering us. Now, he didn't kill all the Philistines, did he? But he threw them into confusion, and then the Israelites went, and they finished up the job. It's a powerful reality of God's deliverance here. You see, we're just often too sophisticated to recognize the divine hand in a situation like that. So the point of the story here up to this point is to see the magnificent power of God who delivers his children from their bondage and oppression. And when we in our sin and struggle and bondage repent of our sin and turn from our wicked ways, he hears us and he is ready to deliver us, and he has delivered us from the power of sin. Just remember what happened with Jesus Christ on the cross, and, and just remember, I was talking with, with, with people about a movie like The Passion of Christ that tried to present 
this, this suffering that Jesus went through, and, and you cannot put in movie form the mighty power of God's wrath on the shoulders of his son. You can't feel it, you can't see it, you just know it's true because God reveals it. He poured out his deliverance through his wrath on his son for us. He is our deliverer, and he is our judge, and he is our savior. But he also requires us to believe his promises and stand like a soldier ready for battle in armor, wielding a sword of the spirit, holding up the shield. We have a responsibility, but he also delivers us when we trust his promises. Now, our deliverance may not come in the same form. It's kind of hard, you know, okay, so we're going through this trial and we're turning to God and, you know, where are the Philistines around, right? You've got this kind of, how do you transfer that over into our particular circumstance? But hear this, God promises that he is present at work in our lives for his glory. Samuel, as the leader of God's people and a priest of God, presents the people to God in two ways, by prayer and by sacrifice. But today, in our context as the church, God has provided the sacrifice, that is the cross. So in other words, the deliverance has already taken place in the cross, so we come boldly to the throne of grace and pray in the power of the gospel for God to have his way with us to deliver us according to his will. You and I are no longer under sin's power. We may be under its bondage. We may place ourselves in that, and God can get us out of there, but we have the freedom now to be loosed from the the ongoing, dominating power of sin. God has delivered us through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. So we see then this, this complete dependence on God that is necessary. The third thing is this, an honest remembrance. Now I want to just pause here, and there's something important in the structure of 1 Samuel that we need to see here, and I think gives some, some power to what is going on here. The writer of 1 Samuel has been very, very careful and clever to sandwich chapter 4 and chapter 7 with the whole uh, sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter four and chapter seven with this whole ark story. And we want to just compare a little bit um, between those two chapters. I want you to think through this with me. Chapter four and seven are, in a sense, the book ends to this ark chronicles. In chapter four, it is Israel who is struck down by the Philistines. In chapter seven, it's the Philistines that are struck down by Israel. Right? In chapter four, Israel seeks to manipulate God with the ark, wanting it to save them, and the Philistines here. But in chapter seven, Israel seeks repentance before God, trusting him to save them, and the Philistines here again. Chapter four ends with Ichabod. The glory has departed. Brings us now to chapter seven, to Ebenezer. And that takes us now to verse 12. Then Samuel took the stone and set it up between Mizpah 
and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. The word Ebenezer means stone of help. God had helped them when they were undeserving of his help. And that is the same story for us. God helps us when we don't deserve his help. And the moment we forget that we are, when we forget that that is true, we are bound to begin our wandering away to other gods. So the help the people of Israel Remember, Samuel takes a stone, a monument of sorts, so that they will remember what God has done for them. So the stone is a stone of remembrance, a stone reminding them of the help of God. Now, he continues on here and he says, till now the Lord has helped us, right? Till now the Lord has helped us. Now this statement embraces not just the, the recent deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, but it reaches back into the history of Israel as a nation. It identifies that God has been their help from the beginning. Not just in all their victories, but also in their many sorrows and defeats, and even in their oppression due to their sinfulness. God has helped them. And that is important for us to remember. God is our helper in our victories as well as in our suffering. He is helping even when we are under his hand of discipline. See, God is not disciplining us just for the sake of punishment. God disciplines for the purpose of growing us, of restoring us, of helping us in our relationship with him. So help does not mean God providing all sorts of human blessings. God, it means God guiding our paths to be, be in a right relationship with him. And he is far more concerned about our eternal standing with him than our earthly comforts. See, he may remove earthly comforts if your eternal standing is in question. Now, we have stones of help that come in different forms. Every month we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That is a stone of help. It's an opportunity for us to remember how God has helped us through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, giving his body, shedding his blood. Tonight we're gonna celebrate Baptism, and baptism is another stone of help. It's another opportunity, yes, in this case for Jim, to share his testimony and to rejoice about what Christ has done in his life. But for we who are gathered there, it is also a reminder to us of the gospel and this life that we have in Christ. We were once dead, but God has breathed life into us and given us new life. And we are walking now in that new life. It's a stone of remembrance. But I think one of the ways that we typically erect stones of remembrance is through our songs. And, and our songs are dear to us, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're opportunities for us to, to be reminded of, of God and his kindness. And this morning we sang some incredible songs that tied so well with our passage here this morning and brought us to a place to, to bring up the, 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 the themes that are, that are in this text that we need to consider. But I thought of a couple of other ones. How about this one from Isaac Watts? 
O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Oh, I just ponder on those few lines. And we're going to sing a little later another song. Well, hold on a second here. Here's another one. Come thou fount. We sing this a lot. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come. And I hope that by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. We're recognizing that our movement down the path toward the kingdom of God, toward heaven, toward that eternal state is the result of God's help at work in our lives. So we need to remember that. And when we sing, there are songs of remembrance, but there are also songs of ongoing repentance. We come and we sing and we're reminded, oh, this is the gospel. God, I have, I have fallen short of that. And, and in singing the song, in our hearts, as we're singing, we are also praying, we're also restoring. They're just wonderful stones of, of help. So our stones of help not only take us back to God's faithfulness in his dealings with Israel, but they remind us of God's help and faithfulness to us. And when we remember his helping hand in our lives, we are encouraged to press on for his glory. God's help in the past is our hope for the present and future. God's help in the past is our hope for the present and future. And, and Dale Davis, I think, says it really well when he says this. We stand in the present but dwell on the past in order that we may, or we can be steadfast for the future. See, this, this Ebenezer was not just kind of like, oh, let's have a little celebration. Oh, isn't it great we're repentant now? No, this was there to remind the people as they walked back and forth that this is what God did for us. And he has helped us up until this point and through even this time at Mizpah. But this response to the, the judgment of God presses on in this passage. There's still more that we need to see. There's more that we need to, to, to mine out of this passage that is gonna help us to, to make sure that our response is complete. So there's genuine repentance. There's this uh, um, complete dependence. There is that, that third step, this, this honest remembrance. And finally, what I'm calling a healthy maintenance, a healthy maintenance. Now the narrator kind of puts in this summary statement of, of what happened. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. That's a pretty huge statement. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. Remember what happened in those cities? The cities where the tumors broke out, where the lords gathered together against Israel as well as to deal with the ark are now in Israel's hands. Well, this is a huge victory. This is a huge change of events. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So it's just a, a helpful state of being 
for Israel. And what is so typical and so common when things normalize is that people forget, even though they erect stones of help and remembrance. So they need something to continue. And this is what we find here in the ministry of Samuel, this ongoing ministry of judgment. Look at verse 15, and I'll read through verse 17. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So what we see is that Samuel established a circuit ministry throughout Israel where he judged the people. Now certainly, as God's leader for the moment, he was used by God to speak about maybe disputes and different things that were there, but do not be fooled into thinking that he was functioning simply as a judge, as we would use the word judge. He was functioning in his capacity as prophet, being God's judge, which means this, that he was faithfully ministering and proclaiming the word of God as a prophet of God to the people of God. This was an ongoing ministry of the word by the prophet of God to the people of God. See, this revival that took place, this corporate repentance that took place also demands ongoing further ministry in the word. Genuine repentance is to be purposely and followed by the systematic and ongoing feeding of the word of God. The kind of word ministry is not necessarily glamorous as the revival that took place in Mizpah, but it is the meat and potatoes ministry that sustains and molds and guides God's people in their pursuit of God's purposes. Sadly, too much of American Christianity is looking for the next spiritual experience or spiritual high. And because of that, there is a neglect for and a distaste of the word of God faithfully, clearly, and powerfully preached or taught. And so there's this jumping from one spiritual high to the next, a longing for another, some kind of a spiritual experience. And if you're jumping from spiritual high to spiritual high to spiritual high, eventually you will feel empty and out of spiritual encouragement because you have not been feeding on God's word but on human emotion manipulated to make you think that you're meeting with God. I just wanna caution you. What we have here is Samuel going about the mundane, if I can use that word, ministry of the word of God. You know, you got up this morning, you thought to yourself, man, it's raining, do I want to go to church? I'm going to get wet, you know. Some of you thought, oh, I have a, a new raincoat I can wear. This is great. I'd love to go out, right? But we come with all sorts of different attitudes. But listen, even gathering on a Sunday morning is just part of the mundane routine that God has for the church to be nourished and fed and equipped This is not a mountain high experience. This is the ready, a regular, steady, faithful, hopefully, 
ministry of the word of God to the people of God from the word of God. And if we neglect that, then we are in great danger. And don't get me wrong. We should long for and pray for our hearts to be revived. That God would shake the church of its sinfulness and apathy. That there would be a flood of repentance that shakes the church that will ultimately shake the communities we live in. But we must be careful that we don't look down on the week by week, steady and somewhat mundane ministry of the word from the pulpit, the church, in small groups, and in our own personal times with God. This is the ongoing ministry of God judging us, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning, and you could say judging, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now friends, we must place ourselves in the context of that ongoing ministry. Corporately, small groups, personally. And sometimes, I understand, you have to grind it out. Sometimes you have to, this is hard, Lord, but you know, I'm tired, I'm struggling, but I need this. So I call it the meat and potatoes. It's the, it's the substance of who we are as God's people. Now I want to finish with three concluding thoughts. These are things for us to ponder. These are things for us to respond to. These are things that hopefully will shake us a bit as we consider this passage of scripture. Number one, God's calling us to check our condition. To be honest about it. To healthily look at your heart and ask the question, am I in Ichabod or Eliezer? Or maybe ask the question, what is it going to take for you to move from Ichabod to Eliezer? What does God have to do? What kind of struggle and discipline and torment do you have to go through for God to get through to you? Because you've wandered away. Now, no one else may know that. Your spouse may not know that, but in your heart, you have wandered away to other gods. You're worshiping other gods. You're bowing down to them. They are the voices that you're listening to. But you are in Ichabod. We're just the voice of God, the impact of God has just departed from you. And some of that might be a, a callousness that's been taking place in your heart. What does God have to do? Secondly, check your attitude. toward the ongoing ministry of the word. What's your attitude toward that? What's your attitude toward your sinful idolatry? What's your attitude toward his loving ministry of judging you? 
Are you repulsed by even considering those questions? Are you offended at God or even Pastor Rod saying that you might have some idolatry in your heart, that you're wandering away from God? I mean, how dare you? What's your attitude toward those things? Do you really want him at work in your life? If you do, you will want him to judge you. You will long for him to judge you. And you will see his judging ministry as part of his purpose of growing you to be more like his son, Jesus Christ? Or are you putting on the facade of Christianity while doing exactly what you please? Finally, check your repentance. Is it simply remorse because you got caught again? Or because something was exposed? Or is it because people's opinion of you is no longer in good light and you are willing to play the game and go through the motions just so that you can be seen in proper light? Or have you lamented over your sin and idolatry? Have you worshiped God by pouring out your heart in confession and pure dependence on him? Are you being honest about his work of revealing your sin, that it is a good thing? Do you long for the ongoing ministry of the word to guide you, to counsel you and comfort you so that your repentance can continue? Three questions. Let them settle. This passage is screaming at us the beauty and the joy of restoration with God, but it's also screaming at us, don't play around with the idolatry and the sin you have in your life because it'll only get messier. And God is saying, I have something beautiful for you, something that will bring us together once again there's only one who can bring about restoration. He is the one who died for you. He is the one who stands before God and pleads your case. And he does that because of his great love for you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid or tell me to depart. Having seen God's kindness and grace, will you now leave Ichabod and make your journey to Ebenezer. God is ready to help.
Lord, would you take us as your people? You know us through and through. Oh, we can play games with one another. We can put on a facade. We can go through the motions of worship and repentance and fellowship. But Lord, you know what is truly in our heart. Lord, may may you raise up in us hearts that are focusing on you, hearts that are humble before your judgment through your word to reveal our idolatry and our sin. And would you allow us, Lord, to cry out to you for deliverance, for repentance, for restoration that only comes through you. Lord, there are hearts right now that you see that are heavy, that are wrestling with their sin. Comfort them with your Holy Spirit as you convict them with your truth. And lead us, Lord, into repentance for your glory, your precious holy name. Amen.